good people? How we doing? I just want to share a few messages with you really quick if you have the time. Um, you know, I was having a conversation with our staff this past week and, you know, we really feel like we haven't given you enough actionable items where our audience can go out there and make a difference in someone's life today. You know, right now is the time to do it when we're all at home um, and people are struggling out there. So um, the two groups that need help in this on these two messages are uh, patients that are going to be left without a, a hospital bed when we reach the top of the curve come mid-May uh, and the homeless. So uh, the first one is from uh, SVN. It's a shared value, one of the largest actually shared value commercial real estate firms in the United States. Um, and what they're doing is they've, they've launched a campaign called hashtag CRE to save lives. So what this is all about is uh, according to a Harvard Business Review study, there's like 924,000 hospital beds right now in the United States available. Um, and by mid-May, projections are showing there are going to be three to four million people that will have COVID-19 and will need to either be in a hospital bed or need um, to be tested. So how do we do that, right? So uh, what SVN has, has put together is uh, they have a ton of vacant spaces in a database of all these vacant spaces. Really, the message today is for medical workers, uh, for government officials. If you know somebody uh, who is in that position to make this decision, you know, please t tell them about this uh, campaign. Drive them to real-leaders.com slash solutions, uh, where they can go on, basically just contact, say, hey, I need this space. Uh, all the listings are close to hospitals. They're either drive-through facilities that they can transform into testing facilities, uh, or just vacant spaces of over a thousand square feet uh, where we can you know, set people up and uh, make sure that the heroes of COVID-19, all the medical workers right now, have a space to treat people. Uh, so it's going to be a, a group effort, a team effort, and the only way through this is together. So uh, real quick, here's a message uh, from the CEO of SVN. My name is Kevin Majacomo, CEO of SVN, one of the largest commercial real estate advisory firms in the US, and I nominate the entire organization, all of SVN, specifically Kurt Arthur, Deborah Kwok, Cameron Irons, Brent Miller, and Brian Edmonds to list their properties on real-leaders.com forward slash solutions for medical workers and locally elected government officials to collaborate for immediate access to vacant spaces for the two million patients who won't be able to be treated in a hospital when re we reach the top of the curve in mid-May. So if you are a medical professional or someone who knows someone who can take advantage of these readily available spaces, please share this video or make your own or tag them in the comment section below using hashtag CRE2SaveLives. So please help flatten the curve and join the other agents who have already placed their listings at real-leaders.com forward slash solutions. Let's do this. Let's make an immediate impact and a big difference. Thank you. Again, people, so go to real-leaders.com slash solutions. Uh, or take a video of yourself, tag us, we'll reshare it on LinkedIn, we'll reshare it, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Um, and let's just make sure we get the ball rolling on this to accommodate the 2 million people that uh, might need space in, here in mid-May. We really don't know what's going to happen. So 
that's one solution. The next one actually comes from our sponsor. I think this is a, it's a great solution. Um, and you know, if, if you're a company who's uh, working remotely right now and you want to send them a little, little pick-me-up gift, great way to help out the homeless. Um, so what is Numbelievable? It's a direct-to-consumer baked goods company on a mission to donate 1 million meals to those in need by 2022. So how does it work? Every time you order a box of cookies, there's 12 cookies, a dozen cookies in a box, um, they are going to donate two meals to uh, soup kitchens across America. Uh, so obviously, you know, very difficult time right now for uh, the homeless population. Um, and this is a way we can drive funds for them in a for-profit model. Um, and also, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out here as well. Uh, they are delicious cookies. Like, I, even if you're not even about the the effort to help the homeless, or you, you know, if you if you just are a cookie lover, uh, I've got a roommate here. Yeah, I, yes, I have roommates. Yes, so I've got a roommate here who orders at like two boxes of cookies a week, and they come from a nice place, you know, down the street. He told me, he's a hard reviewer, and he told me these cookies are like an 8.7. Another roommate said it was 8.5, another one said it was a 9.1. That's saying something. And, and I'm, 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 I will go on the record, and so will they, to say these are the best cookies that you can have shipped to you in the mail. You just don't, they're, they're big, they're, they're chewy, they're, man, they're just tasty. I wish I had more to eat. Um, but we went through that box fairly fast, as you can imagine. Um, so, uh, best deal today is you're going to get 25% off. Um, you, all you got to do is go to realdashleaders.com uh, slash podcast. There's the podcast page. There's going to be a picture of a box, the Unbelievable box on there. Um, and just click on that box. It'll take you to the website. It'll automatically uh, apply a 25% discount on your on any order. So you can order as many as you want. Uh, for your employees, uh, for your family members or friends uh, during these times. A little pick-me-up gift again. Um, and they're delicious cookies. I promise you, you'll probably order another one after you try them. Uh, so real slash solutions, or you can go to an num- unbelievable website, enter in code ReLeaders, uh, all uppercase. Delicious cookies. Uh, and again, helping out those in need. And the last thing you can do, folks, is just sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Uh, We know that 20 million tons of material are lost every year to disposal. And that 20 million tons, uh, if if recycled, has immediate impacts on our economy in terms of jobs, on our environment, in terms of carbon saving. And I, I think that the you know, the thing to think about is, you know, why are we recycling in the first place? You are listening to the Releaders Podcast, your number one source for impact leaders harnessing capitalism to sustain the planet, people, and profits. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that message was from Keith Harrison, the CEO of the Recycling Partnership, who wants to set the record straight about the impact of recyclables. So, what is the circular economy? Is recycling economically viable? And why the hell are we recycling in the first place? Find out on this episode of The Reelers Podcast. Enjoy. Let's dance. Here we go. In five, four, 
three, two, and one, and welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is the founder and CEO of the Recycling Partnership, Mrs. Keith Harrison. Keith, thanks for being with us today. Very glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, okay, the Recycling Partnership, plastics. We're talking about plastics here, Keith. What obligated you to start the Recycling Partnership? I've worked in recycling about 20 years and I worked on the government side and on the private sector side. And what I saw is that recycling really needed a marriage counselor. Everyone wanted the same thing, but everyone was after a different approach to get there. And the vocabulary that our different sectors involved with recycling were using were different. And so when I say a marriage counselor, what I realized is that we needed something to really tie together the intent to understand that everyone's here for a different reason. But if we tie together the intent and we tie together the passion for the solution that we can achieve our goal together. Mm, okay. So like everyone's in their own silos, you want to break them down. You want to get everyone together, help them out. So I'm interested though. So what exactly is the Recycling Partnership's involvement in this movement? And I know I already messed up. I already said it's just plastics. It's not just plastics. There's nine types of plastics. There's glass, there's metals, there's papers. But what specifically is the Recycling Partnership's involvement in this movement? Right. So the Recycling Partnership was formed to be an action agent in recycling. We all know about recycling. It's been around for a long time. Um, But what we don't know is that half of Americans can't recycle at home as easily as they can throw something away. And citizens are are when they purchase something, they're excited about their But then at the end of it, they're left wondering, what do I do with this branded trash? And through my years of working in the space, what was clear is that we needed to get the producers of materials really engaged with making solutions with citizens. And that was the whole heart of the recycling partnership. How do we create an action agent nonprofit that can pull together our corporate partners who are producing things, our communities who start recycling programs and put them together? And if you remember that marriage counselor uh, analogy, you know, everyone is here for a different reason. They don't always understand it. You know, they don't have, not everyone has the same ROI, but we all want the same outcome. And so when you can start to build uh, a solution like the recycling partnership has, what we see is that in six years from concept to now, we have reached more than 45% of the U.S. population with a stronger recycling program. We have nearly 50 corporate funders who to date have pledged more than $104 million. We turn that all right around into grants and technology and infrastructure for local governments with the whole point of overhauling the U.S. recycling system. And you're right, it is in part about plastics, but it's also about other materials like boxes, cans, and bags. Keith, I feel like we're in this period of time where like the the environmental cost of capitalism like just can't be comfortably ignored. It just can't anymore. So when you're saying it's it needs to come from the producers and it needs to be the marriage counselor between the consumers, who's really driving this movement? Is it the, the consumers demanding that our plastics be recycled, our bottles, our cans be recycled and, and to eliminate this ocean waste? Or is it the producers that you're finding and saying, you know what, we need to you know keep out keep an eye on this and really invest in the infrastructure of recycling? 
Yes, and it's citizens who want to see a solution for their stuff. They they don't want the environmental guilt of what they've bought. Uh, they want to make sure that when they're purchasing something, they know that it can be turned into something new. But it's also the companies that are making it. We see serious pledges from corporations who who know that um, they need to lean into building solutions around uh, the circular economy. And I'd love to talk to you about this circular economy concept. Um, but we also see uh, real buy-in from retailers. We see buy-in from elected officials in a way that we have it in a really long time. So it, it's a perfect storm right now and of, um, of opportunity. You know, emotions around this, this plastic concern and circularity are, have never been higher. And we're using that at the Recycling Partnership as a chance to jump in and create technology-based solutions all the way from data-based behavior change to robotics rotation um, to really envisioning a better solution. We're not trying to save old school recycling. We're trying to launch a better system that that makes sure that everything that's produced uh, has a new life at the end of its life. Ah, interesting. What, what do you mean by old school recycling? Well, I think, you know, when we think about recycling, you know, we think about putting it in a bin and it goes away. And I think we all have a general understanding that it turns into something else. Um, so I'm, for instance, the vest that I'm wearing right now is filled with recycled PET soda bottles. So in a former life, this was a soda bottle. Now it's my vest. Uh, I think we have a general concept of that. But that re- that this vest is still a reaction, right? When this company decided to make this vest, they knew they needed to fill it with something. And what they chose was a recycled content material to do so. Um, what if we didn't make it a choice or a reaction, but we instead pivot to what is called a circular economy, which is the stop of the make to waste linear economy. We're gonna make it and then something will happen with it. It'll either be recycled or not. Um, and instead launch a circular economy. And a circular economy means that from the point of chemistry and design, you're, we're understanding that uh, there's intent that goes into what's being made, should it be made, and how is it made. And then throughout that entire system, it, it's much more, um, it, it follows more the path of, of nature. So when a tree loses its leaves, those leaves fall and become nutrients for the tree itself. It's a secular a program that, that feeds itself. Um, that's the opposite of our current make-to-waste economy and the intent of a, uh, of a healthier circular economy. And, and that's the goal, right? We want to be a circular economy. We want to reuse and extend the product's life cycle. Uh, now, how many times can plastic be recycled? Well, the, that's a, you know, I've heard a lot of people talk to me about that, that plastic can only be recycled once. Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to recycle plastic, but uh, the traditional way is that a bottle is, we'll start with a bottle. A bottle is ground up, it's melted, and then reformed into a new product. And in that process, it's mixed up with other plastics. And so there's a constant blending of recycled and, and virgin plastics that get used all together. So there's um, so that we see that going over and over again. And I think there's a concern of people that there's can only, that can only happen one time and then there's a finite stop to that. When it comes to plastics, um, they're, through that blending and remanufacturing of new materials, that, that does go on. Uh, there's 
a new advanced uh, line of thinking around plastics recycling, chemical recycling, where you're actually bringing it down to the polymer level. And that's a that's an infinite process. When you get to things like cans and, and glass, there is no limit on the recyclability. It can go round and round. But the real concern is how clean is it? What is it? What energy does it take to clean it? And really, what are we trying to do? And I think if we pull back just for a second, why does recycling even exist? Is it for our environmental guilt, consumerism? Um, is it to save natural resources? The thing that makes recycling happen is manufacturing. So when we as citizens put something into a bin to recycle it, what's happening is it's going through a process to create feedstock to make something new. And it has to compete with virgin, uh, that means not recycled, on three levels. One, cost, two, quality, and three, quantity. Can I get as much of what I need for the price that I need it at the spec that I need it? So that process of building something for manufacturing, when you look at it through that lens, you understand that the economics of the entire system have to pay out until for us to get any of the environmental benefits that that the consumer really expects out of recycling. So that's part of why the recycling partnership works with our corporate partners is we want to make the whole system a healthier economic balance so that we deliver um, we can deliver stronger economics in terms of jobs and material supply chain, but also in terms of the of the environment. Well, I really like what you said. Why do we do recycling in the first place? You know, it's like uh, some people refer to it as like a gateway to just being environmentally conscious. And others are like, oh, it's a placebo effect. You think you're recycling. It's not really, you know, doing anything where I like to think, you know, it's a lot of people say, okay, well, let's just throw our recycling away in the trash and let's have it uh, incinerate and burn, you know, get fuel that way. It's much more economically viable situation. But if you think long term, if we don't do anything about it. You know, chances are we're going to be stuck in this world where plastics that don't, you know, biodegrade for 600 years are just going to be here. And it's like, think about that 600 years, folks, like the Notre Dame, that's 600 years ago. It's a long yeah. time. Um, well, so. and, and that's if it is all. I mean, I think the thing to understand about a landfill is it's a tomb, right? Uh, a landfill purposely per- prevents the material inside of it from reach, uh, being reached by sunlight, water, or air. And without sunlight, water, and air, degradation does not happen. It, breakdown happens and they can create a lot of methane in the process. Um, but, I, but I think that's the important thing to remember is that um, you know, the, the length of time, you know, you enjoy a product for a short amount of time and the amount of energy that went into creating it and the length of time for it to go away far exceed the benefit of the the initial use. So that, that's really what we're, we're getting at. And I think that's, you know, I think that's what your audience is probably pretty interested in is like, what does Gen Z think about this? And I think much more like Gen millennials and Gen Z are really have no patience for this idea that we can just make something and expect that 600 years later, something will happen to it. That's okay. Um, we see a lot of pressure on companies from, uh, from Gen Z and millennials to be responsible hosts. And this is a good thing. So, uh, I, I told you we've raised more than a hundred million dollars. That's almost entirely corporate backed. And, it's really interesting to be a nonprofit with such heavy corporate funding. And I get asked pretty regularly, you know, 
are you legit? Is that an honest behavior? Can you be corporate funded and work on the environment? And I, I say emphatically, yes. When we as citizens call on our companies to do something about it, someone has to do something about this. What are we asking them to do and to what end? And if I'm a company who's really skilled at creating and selling a product, why, who's to assume that I have the skills that it, that it takes to create a system to recover the product. I think um, that's why we've had a lot of success is companies are looking for solution providers to help them meet their environmental goals. So when we see a sustainability pledge uh, that's around the circular economy or recycling space, we believe it's our job to insist and assist them in getting there. We we really like being firmly rooted. This is that marriage counselor again in between the companies, the communities, the the, the citizens, and the producers. And uh, and we need to connect those dots. Otherwise, we're just waiting for something to happen instead of driving action. So, Keith, what about the consumers who argue that single-use plastic is the problem? Yep. I, you know, I was having a conversation with an NGO um, that is much more interested in banning all plastics. And um, we were understanding that we're never going to see truly eye to eye because the recycling partnership is dealing with the situation as it is right now. I, I don't have any assumption that I'm going to stop or change the type of consumerism. I'm trying to create a better scenario for what's happening. So what? why are there all these single-use plastics? Well, there's ultimately convenience, right? Like consumers still choose to consume, uh, and they, but they just want it to be done in a healthier way. I don't see, you know, our research doesn't show us that we see massive switches uh, away from convenience. But I think what we can do is really call on companies and our retail partners to to think about how do we how do we see convenience in a different way? How could we deliver be, have our goods delivered in a way that it isn't? Uh, amassing piles of leftover stuff. Are there reuse models? Are there refill models? Uh, and then, you know, the consumer behavior is, I think, ultimately the last step um, in there. But that's not to say that consumer choice does not matter. I always encourage people that, you know, when they ask me, what should I do if I really care about the environment and uh, the space? And I remind them about, um, you know, voting with their dollars, right? How you spend your money matters, but only if you tell the company how you're spending your money. You know, you need to be able to really explain to um, the, the feedback loops with our, with our corporate partners of what matters to you, because they're listening really hard right now. And so are our elected officials in a way that they never have. They're hearing from their citizens that, um, that there's a concern about plastics, about recycling, about waste. And, um, and I think that the first step is reducing always. So getting rid of gratuitous uh, material use, reusing, and then recycling. It, it's such a, an interesting topic right now. Like I had, I've had the opportunity to interview so many different, you know, people taking on the recycling crisis in different ways. Mm-hmm. And every single time I learned something new. Now I want to talk about that vest you're wearing right now. You mentioned it yeah. once. 
Um, the fashion industry is very similar. Uh, you know, they use a lot of synthetics and and virgin materials. Now Patagonia, the vest you have on there, I think they made a pleasure to do like a hundred or 50% recyclables by like 2030, which is very impressive. It's a big, you know, um, step forward in that direction. Uh, but at the end of the day, if I grow out of that vest and I throw it away, it's going back to a landfill. Um, and and again, you know, we we talked about the virgins, the virgin plastics. Um, the I think I was listening to a podcast with NPR. It's like twenty five billion dollars of investment are going into plastic manufacturing in this next year. It's tough to compete with that too. But what I'm really excited about, Keith, if you let me finish here, is that. Uh, uh, the new pledge, I think it was, uh, yeah, See the Future. Are you aware of See the Future? It's the Mindaru Foundation. It's got oh, yeah. partners mm-hmm. like um, uh, Unilever just, just jumped on board. A lot of, uh, you know, um, consumer manufactured products, cosmetic companies jumped on board with their bottles. Uh, basically, it's a contribution payable. That is it what they're doing to make the price of recycled plastics even with virgin plastics. So they're it's a payable though. So they're they're paying more money, but I think it's to build the infrastructure of recycling plastics. So with all of that in mind, Keith, do you think one day that recycled plastic could be the same price? And what needs to change in order for, in order for us to do that? Yeah, the Mindaroo uh, development was pretty interesting. I um, I was at an oceans conference um, in Abu Dhabi, and uh, it was the day before the meeting start. And this, and this, I was reading on the beach. It was a beautiful day. I live in New England, so it was snowy at home. There I am on the Persian Gulf. Just I was just Love taking it. a moment before it got really busy to soak it all in. This man ran, ran out and asked me, why is there no one swimming? Is it safe to swim? And I said, I don't know. And he, uh, he said, I'm sure it is. And he leaped into the ocean. And that was um, that was Andrew, the head of Mindaroo. And it, it was interesting to hear him later on stage come up with this idea about, you know, uh, really proposing um, a voluntary uh, exercise to raise the price of virgin plastics and um, and to watch that development. We've, we've had some interesting conversations with World Bank about this too, because I think what you're trying to get at is, you know, are the headwinds and more, one thing that really, you know, would, when I work with companies or people who are interested in recycling, they jump first to what should the consumer do about this. I, I always try to remind them that the consumer is the citizen and we need to make sure that one, they have access to do the behavior that we want them to do and that it makes sense. So right now, I, I won't lose track of the virgin question. I'm going to get there right now. If a city wants to uh, collect recyclables, when they drive that truck to the front of a MRF, which is a material recovery facility, that's the plant that separates all the recyclables into the different streams. On average in this country, they're going to pay about double what it costs them to drive a truck to the front door of a landfill. Mm, okay. Economic changes in this country have uh, have really put a lot of pressure back on local governments to uh, to bear the burden of increased cost of the entire system. So it begs the question of, you know, when people say is recycling broken, I, you know, I think we get confused about the fact that. Recycling is not a thing. It is a loosely connected, highly dependent network of activities, public and private sector investing in things. And it is still a reaction. When there's a big enough pile of light stuff, 
some sort of plastic that an entrepreneur can say, I know how to turn that pile into something new, then it happens. And then we get the environmental benefits. When the price of virgin is too low, the price of landfills are too high, the operation costs are too high, it, we never get that innovation in the space. So I think it's really important And our organization for the last year has been really digging in on these, these, these headwind challenges and addressing things like disposal, uh, having conversations about virgin resin use, uh, having, uh, working on how do we create new me funding mechanisms for this country so that local go governments can afford to run their programs, and how do we create consistency across producers so that everyone is at the table, co-funding smart, streamlined, orchestrated investments so that we get to where we want to go together. Because the last thing we need are a bunch of one-off projects that might have a, a good case study at the end, but haven't really changed the system. Mm, got it. Got it. Okay. That makes a lot of sense because I'm, I'm in California and I, I grew up in Oregon, Keith. So it was just like innate to recycle bottles, go to the store every single Sunday, deposit your cans, deposit your bottles. It was very simple and clear. When I moved to Arizona and they didn't have that, it was like a shock to me. I was just like, you guys don't recycle your bottles here? It's like, no, no, we just throw them in the recycling bin or, you know, in the trash or in the street, you know, whatever. And <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, right. Don't so do that. It, it don't do that. No, no, no. Uh, unless you believe in incineration, it's better, but I don't. <laughs> so I'm going to keep recycling. So in California, it's very difficult to do that. Um, because of the ban, the plastic or recyclable ban in China as well, in the, the past, uh, I think it was two years ago. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but two years ago, I'm going to say they uh, banned that uh, the recyclables coming in. And I, I want people to realize that it wasn't just trash. It was all recyclables. So in China, would their material, their material producer, manufacturer, supplier, they're going to ship all their stuff over to the United States. Those ships that are coming back are empty. They're going to fill them up with uh, plastic recyclables. They're going to take them back to China. In, or the Southeast Asia, and we have to realize that these countries are—they uh, don't have like uh, ocean bands, like plastic ocean bands. They'll dump them in the oceans over there, as well as what they're doing there is they're incinerating those and using those for fuel. So, how did that ban in China impact the United States? Do you think it was a good thing, or do you think it was a bad thing? So. I used to live in California too, in Half Moon Bay. Um, and um, and I'd love to talk about California and like what's what's happening. Um, so we could we could do that it. if go you want it. to. But uh, we'll use the other C word first and go to China. So is was the China ban good or bad? So it nationals before National Sword, which was um, they set the bar of recycling so high with such a minuscule amount of contamination in it that basically nothing go, can come in. There was the green fence, which was an early warning of, hey, you need, hey, other countries, US and others, you need to clean up the stream that's coming in. Um, but I think we need to take a step back and realize how did we get here? Mm. So much of this was driven by the paper industries and, um, the woman CEO of Nine Dragons Paper Mill uh, saw in America the opportunity to gather up used paper, put it on empty cargo ships that were bringing stuff here, but going back empty, and haul it to China to turn into new paper uh, at a cheaper rate than generating it 
internally in China. Because the hauling was so cheap, because the boat had to go home anyway, because their human labor law or human labor was so inexpensive, mm-hmm. because they had uh, at that time virtually no environmental protections around this. What happened is we set up, we got used to the economics of um, the of recycling being cheap. If you just sit, put it in a cargo ship and send it away, something will happen. What happened over time is, uh, you know, we were exploiting their human resources, their environmental resources. And ultimately, I think that this is a very good thing that this happened because the intent, I get a little frustrated when sometimes when I hear like, People say that China is the one that's ruined recycling. No way. We set up a completely hollow structure to send recyclables over there. Now, not all recycling was going to China, but a good portion was. And pretending that it was like going to all be okay. And the reality of it is that we saw uh, illegal dumping. We saw humans being hurt by this. We saw a lack of respect for the, the intention of what was supposed to happen in recycling. So I think that this is a good thing because it is turning the, the tension back home. Um, I think it's a good thing as long as we don't just pivot to to country B, right? Like as long as we don't repeat this problem with another country. So what do we see now? We see more than $4 billion worth of investment in paper mills in this country. So we see the local, the national domestic growth of opportunity to recycle more here. We see a billion plus uh, investment in the plastics infrastructure to keep that going. We see a total shift uh, to a closer marketplace with our environmental standards, with um, our human rights standards. And I think that that that's a good thing. Good, good. That's good to hear. Now, what about California? I'm interested. (laughs) Well, which part of California? I'm in San Diego. I'm in Southern California. Yes. So, um, you know, we just finished a project with California where we um, convened several cities who were having a real struggle with this post-China ban and high contamination rates and making things go. So there is a there is a common consciousness in California that's really elevated about recycling. But that doesn't mean that California cities still aren't having trouble paying the bills uh, and making it all work because of the economics of cheap disposal, even in California, you know, in the, the lower central valley of California, it is landfill prices are inexpensive there. It is for such an expensive state, it's confusing about that. So, uh, California cities are still struggling with the fact that um, if they can't send their stuff to China, and a lot of California was really using that West Coast export market, mm. um, then now they have to. Uh, they have to pay more to get the quality that they need and to make and to run their programs. And so I wouldn't take it for granted that everything is just going to stay the same. I think California faces the real uh, operational costs or challenges that every other city in this country faces. Um, it will be an interesting mashup with the dedicated population in California who expect to be the green leaders if they lose an opportunity. So we invite everyone to continue to talk to their uh, to their favorite brands, their elected officials, their, uh, their counterparts about the importance of ensuring um, that, again, we're building a healthy system. We're not just trying to wait for that entrepreneur to turn a bottle into a jet vest, but that we're actually looking at how are we ensuring that if it's produced and sold, that the citizen can ensure that it can go into another life as something else someday. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's what I think is so important as well is, uh, consumers. There's sometimes there's confusion at the waste bin on terms of what goes where. And we think about is recycling economically viable. Sometimes it takes more time for the people at those recycling, uh, facilities to sort these things because they're not sorted in the first place. Uh, Keith, 10 at best, 10% of the plastic or recyclables in the United States actually get recycled. What do you think are some, some solutions as a marriage counselor in this situation to um, to change this? Let me pull. I have my handy copy of our 2020 state of curbside recycling report on my desk. And it goes through in about 69 pages exactly what that what is happening in the U.S. by material, by community. And what are we going to do about it? So uh, we know that 20 million tons of material are lost every year to disposal. And that 20 million tons, uh, if, it, if recycled, has immediate impacts on our economy in terms of jobs, on our environment, in terms of carbon saving. And I, I think that the, you know, the thing to think about is, you know, why are we recycling in the first place? Um, it, you know, we're not, we're not out to re- recycle or die. We are out to make sure that recycling in the circular economy is our, we're working in this piece of the pie, but our nurse towards the North Star of climate change, right? We are working to prevent prevent climate change by ensuring that the materials are produced, are produced in a circular way um, so that we're, we're uh, doing the best we can to, um, to make sure that we're uh, not doing harm. And we have to do that with an investment of, um, an investment of uh, preparation. So I'm married to a product designer, right? So it, it makes for interesting conversations at the dinner table. Sure. And very often, you know, his metrics um, that he's handed down from leadership are about um, knowing, you know, when he's designing a product, he's designing it for sales. He want, They want it to be badass. They want it to be competitive. They want it to look great. And it needs to get out the door better than their competitors. Oh, and please make sure that it's sustainable. You know, I think that what our prioritization uh, in the design phase sometimes still leans on, can we use a greener material um, instead of instead of where we really need to go is, you know, what is the service we're trying to, or the action we're trying to serve and with what, which way can we do that? For instance, do we always need single use containers or is there a refill model? Um, so, I, you know, I think a lot of opportunity, but I wouldn't, you know, if people are really interested of what is happening in the U S post China, the 2020 state of curbside reports on our website and it's um, it, it is exciting stuff. Now, what is the government's role in this? Uh, when we think about standardization, uh, we had a uh, Mitch Hedlund, the founder of Recycle Across America, on the show earlier, and she was talking about the case of the actual stop sign itself. If you mm-hmm. were going to design a stop sign, what it looks like, you make if you pass it around to your fifth grade elementary school class, you may have. 10 different designs. Uh, If you drew a recycling label, a compost label, uh, you may have 20 different designs. Uh, People in their own businesses are putting up different signs for different things. So the case is there. Does standardized labeling uh, mitigate confusion at the waste bin? Anyhow, that's not the question. The question is, what can government officials do to speed up this process? Um. 
Yeah. So when, if it was as easy as a label, wouldn't that make our job? I would have a different job, right? This would not be my job. So labels are definitely part of it, but consume, but I think what we get to is the role of government. If in this country, the census tells us there's 20,000 local governments all do, and they all have their own decision what to do with trash and recycling. Do they recycle? How do they recycle? What do they call it? You know, and if we, uh, if there are that many local decision makers, they also have to know how to fund it. And like I said earlier, they're having a hard time knowing how to funding it. Mm. So there is the idea of harmonizing the U.S. system assumes that you could, you know, that there's one place to send everything, that it all gets turned into something new the same way, and that we can accept the same thing in every city. And we are just really not there yet. So right now, the role of local government is to be the service provider, to make sure that you in your town have the opportunity to recycle and to know that that when you put it in the bin that you can trust that it can go to something new. That's the way that it's been for the past decades. And, and it's, there's a, um, you know, there's kind of discord and how that's done from one town to the next. What we think is a, is a more interesting option is how can we uh, ensure that consistency across the state of group of states or even the nation um, to build some trust around uh, the circular system. So what I think policymakers could look into is one, how do we measure and mass our data so that there's consistency in this space? There's a huge opportunity for that to happen. And EPA is a natural house for that. Um, there's also opportunities for lawmakers to really look at how can we elevate landfill costs um, and use the use those revenues to drop to generate budgets to operate recycling programs instead. So we're trying to build a parity that repair a disparity in recycling that doesn't exist right now. Uh, right now, you know, there's, for all the talk about recycling, if you look at the economics, our country is very pro-trash, right? It's so much easier and cheaper to send it into the landfill. If we really want to make recycling successful, we could use policymakers' help in adjusting those, those costs to start with. Keith, I read an interesting article yesterday uh, on real-lawyers.com. Uh, <laughs> and it was about the comparison between the coronavirus and the climate crisis. And why are we reacting like this now with the coronavirus where people aren't going outside? Uh, they're not p- purchasing certain things. They're not, you know, obviously our, our economy is taking a hit from it versus this existential problem um, that is if we actually don't change uh, it's going to impact everybody in this world and yet there's I wouldn't say there's a little effort but it's not the effort like what's happening right now with this pandemic what well, do you, yeah yeah sure. I mean why are we as humans programmed to uh, to respond to the threat right in front of us, even if something's bigger, you know, it's, exactly. I, I heard a podcast and it was comparing coronavirus to like more people will die from heart disease, but it is a slow killer than from coronavirus. If you ask people, are you afraid of heart disease? They don't say yes. And the analogy on this podcast was that it has to do with, um, with our ancestors being afraid, you know, we need to stay away from things that are going to eat us. So the immediate threat is the bigger one. 
So what do we do about not overwhelming people with a larger question of how do we solve marine debris? How do we work on uh, global climate change? Um, I think it's by keeping it front of mind, but also making it tangible. So at the beginning, you said recycling can sometimes be a gateway, right? That behavior could be something can open up to someone else. But I also think it's important to know that recycling won't solve marine debris. Recycling won't alone won't solve climate action. Recycling can't solve the circular economy, but the circular economy can solve recycling and recycling can and should be parts of the others. So um, last year I was on a pretty interesting adventure. Uh, There's a research vessel that took corporate executives into the middle of the Atlantic and uh, we were about 50 miles east of, or 50 kilometers east of Bermuda, uh, get out of the ship and, and go snorkeling in the open ocean. No land, two miles deep, beautiful blue water. And the whole point of it was to, to see if we saw plastics. And you know what we saw in the middle of the Atlantic? We saw forks and sports and fishing gear, an entire toilet seat. We saw big pieces. We saw little confetti of plastic in the sargassum of the floating, uh, it's a floating web of plants that is kind of the nursery for sea turtles and other, uh, other ocean life. And that experience was intended to help root the change making in our corporate leaders. And I was really glad to be there. And it was an interesting time for me because I started off as a herpetologist working, a herpetologist uh, studies turtles. So I studied off thinking I wanted to be a field biologist and uh, I've tagged sea turtles in Costa Rica and the coast of North, worked with them on the coast of North Carolina and with um, endangered turtles in the mountains of North Carolina. And, um, and at that time there was one plastic gyre and now it, there's, there are five, but it's really everywhere. It's at the deepest part of the ocean. It's in all of our, our, our ocean creatures. And this intersection of my, you know, kind of my first love of, of turtles and toads and, um, and kind of wet places and intersects with my work here in recycling. And on that vessel, I was able to bring my college professor Ann Summers with me and she's near retirement now, but she got to tell corporate executives what it's like to launch young environmental scientists and environmental studies students into the world. And, and I think that that is what we need to keep people focused on solution is to is to not give up the conversation, but instead deepen the opportunities for people to understand and make climate and make ocean health um, present to them. And um, and so we're working on that in a couple different ways um, uh, and we'll continue to drive, but it it's a constant challenge. And I would invite um, all of your real leaders uh, readers and viewers um, to think about what their companies can do to make sure that we're all providing tangible solutions inside our companies, inside our products, inside our behaviors, inside our employees. And, um, and we do that together. So I think your taglines inspire the future, right? That's correct. Yep. Yeah. Well, I think that's a pretty good, insp- <laughs> that's climate change is a, a needs some, some inspiration and dedication for sure. Well, I think you're touching on a really good point, you know, that out of sight, out of mind. And when we think about plastic, whether it's in the middle of the ocean, 
uh, or even in our tap waters. Uh, you know, an article written by a, a woman who was pregnant. It's in my body. It's in my kid. You know, it's something to think about. It's that that plastic. You know, this this man made product is everywhere and everywhere that we see and cannot see. Um, but Keith, I, the question I have for you is, uh, in terms of threats, like what is now? Let's two questions. What is the biggest threat to the recycling crisis? We mentioned consumers. We mentioned producers. We mentioned single waste. And then what is the biggest threat that plastic produces? Is it on the environment? Is it on coral reefs? Is it on just climate change in general? So what's the biggest threat to recycling and what's the biggest threat of plastic recyclables on the planet? Mm -hmm. So I think the biggest threat to recycling is that uh, is anything that starts with a can't we just and that means that when i talk to people they're like can't we just teach the children can't we just put degradable additives in that plastic the answer is no um can't we just you know do a demo and show that it works in santa monica can't we just the answer is no when you're trying to overhaul a system it's never adjust um so i think the thing that um will be really hard for uh recycling is having everyone on board with a systems change. And while it, and that's gonna be kind of bumpy as we plan to design for circularity instead of make to waste. You know, we're gonna to have to figure this out. And if people go and try projects on their own without some sort of orchestrated effort together, I don't, I don't think we'll really get there. And I think the second challenge is, will the public give up on it in the meantime? You know, public trust is, is really in, is really rocked right now. And, mm. and we're doing a lot of work to, to regain the public trust, but also to make sure that it is legitimately earned and the fate of material, what it turns into is just as important as, is there a bin to put it into? Mm. So that's, that's, I think, um, the major threat that we are working on as an organization. And we invite anyone who produces anything that ever shows up on a shelf and a consumer touches and has to figure out what do I do with this at the end of life to be part of that? Because if you're not part of it, um, the solution is being shaped. And if you're not going to shape it, there's a good chance you could get shaped. So we invite everyone to be there. What is the threat of plastics on the environment? You know, there's so much focus on plastics right now. And, and, and part of it is rightly so. We need, to, we need to address that. But I, we can't address it just for plastics. I, I think that's, this is kind of the hybrid of the okay. two questions. Yeah. You can't solve circularity for plastics. You have to solve circularity that works for everything in a home, including, including textiles that you mentioned earlier, electronics, cans and bottles and boxes. We have to really think about um, what is generated and what needs to continue uh, to be, to have a purpose post, post use. So I would encourage everyone who's thinking about a plastic solution to, uh, to think about it, to take a step back and think, can I really solve it just for, for it? Or is there a bigger solution? Um, you know, for all the good that plastics does us and all the ways that we are using it right now to have this virtual relationship and conversation, um, the one that frightens me most is waterways. And, you know, uh, plastics and everything from our clothes that wash out in microfibers, um, 
and get eaten by very small marine creatures that then are eaten by everything else. And it bioaccumulates, just like we understand mercury bioaccumulates. So does plastic. Um, that's, you know, that's from a plastic point of view, that's certainly my passion and why I'm part of the ocean leadership network and really trying to work on um, how do we have a common solution for plastics? Um, because if we don't, we run the risk of, um, by 2050, the projection shows there could be more plastics in the ocean than fish. Mm. And we will not survive that. Mm. So I have a concern for that. But but I also, I don't think that that, I, I still have a hard time always just answering it, you know, what's the problem with plastics? Because we're mm. fiercely driving solutions for plastics. So if we're gonna talk about what's the problem in our organization, we never point the finger without saying, and so we must. Um, and we've just launched, uh, we're in the process of launching a new polypropylene uh, coalition of producers and retailers in the who are using polypropylene to really lean in and build a solid solution. Like, uh, I think if you're a producer and using a plastic material or a metal material or a paper material, if you are using these and you're not part of building the solution, um, you know, it's a real miss. Uh, we need you. Keith, I, I really like that a lot. It's not, can we just, it's, and we must a great mindset, uh, of, of a leader. You know, the, the common theme here is what leadership is needed amongst everybody, uh, whether it's the corporations, the citizens, the marriage counselors, what type of leadership is needed to sustain this momentum and make sure everyone's on the same page? Well, I've been, um, I was talking with a couple of different CEOs of chemical producers, resin producers, polypropylene producers, companies about this project. And I think what's really interesting is when a company has, when corporate leadership has an idea of we need to show that we are building a solution on this, it's pretty easy to look at the ROI of, well, I know I could put some money into a project in my nearest facility and I could see how it might be able to benefit me back. But then all you're doing is adjusting one piece. What's needed in this leadership is a common, a common vision that, that takes leaders out of not, not just what are they selling next, but puts them into, if, if we're going to have a population to sell to in 50 or 100 years, we better protect it, right? Mm. Like, we're going to extend this need, this, this view a little bit out further and say, you know, if we don't work on climate change, we might not have Miami. And if we don't have Miami, then we don't have Miami to sell things to. So we need to stretch our thinking a little bit. And then we need to work on common tactics because uh, I often use the example that if you're looking for a, a way to solve marine debris, um, Recycling in the U.S. is an excellent example of how not to do it. You've got 20,000 local governments. You've got thousands of companies all making their own decisions of what to produce. You've got millions of dollars that have been poured into pilots and projects and activities. And we've got what? A 34% recycling rate. If we do that same thing over the next 30 years with the ocean, will that work? Will, will you make it? 
Probably not. We won't, we won't make it. <laughs> so uh, I think the leadership that's needed in this space is to understand that the new business model has to drive uh, not just your short-term sales, but to drive solutions. And I think, you know, we see this from Larry Fink's letters and BlackRock. We see this in new investment houses um, that, that this isn't, this isn't about um, charity. This isn't about just showing your social good. This is protecting society for our very future. Keith, and we must get to this last question here. Uh, with everything that we've talked about today, uh, including the consumers, uh, including uh, China, including uh, the manufacturers, Virgin Plastics, and your meeting with the Minerva Foundation who wanted to jump in the ocean today, what would you say your definition of a real leader is? I think a real leader is someone who can study carefully the problem and then speak to truth to power in a way that says not this is your fault but you are part of this problem and thus part of the solution and join us i think a real leader is one who uh, works hard to have competitors at the table even when they think differently if we know that we need everyone there to make a solution. Keith, well put. It's been such a pleasure speaking with you today. Uh, I'm just so, so grateful to have experts like you come on the show. Um, I've got a, I, got, I think I got all the questions out that I wanted to ask today. Um, and it was a pleasure listening to all the information, all the facts. And I learned a lot today. So I hope our audience enjoys this as much as I did. Oh, thank you so much. This was really wonderful. I appreciate the chance. All right, good people listening to this out there. We appreciate your time. Uh, For Keith Harrison, I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Keith. Keep on keeping on, good people. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you haven't yet subscribed, then please, by all means, hit the subscribe button to start receiving notifications of this bi-weekly podcast. And for all you lucky listeners out there today, you are getting your first magazine on a one-year subscription for free when you go to real-leaders.com slash subscribe and enter in coupon code podcast25. You're going to receive that first magazine in the mail for free, $18 off and pay $54 for three more. It's a bargain, folks. Readers are leaders. Make sure you're checking out the magazine and follow along with a podcast that complements it too. If you're a visual learner, you don't want to read. You just want to sit down with a bag of Cheetos and watch this podcast. Folks, do we have the channel for you on YouTube at Real Leaders Magazine. You can see all our interviews with guests harnessing capitalism, to sustain the planet, people, and profits. Thanks again, everyone, for being a real leader, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. Thank you.